reversing diabetes, managing pain, and gaining optimal health with Dr. Gurpreet Pada from the Dr. Pada Institute on episode number 184 of the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. I think that we need to become more anti-fragile. I think that we need to look at our immediate environment and ask ourselves, what's going to happen when our food distribution systems collapse? What's going to happen when we can't go to the grocery store and find the food that we normally find because it's sitting in shipping containers somewhere in Mexico and the borders are shut down? And so I, I think that the solutions for a lot of this stuff is to bring back local production of food. Hi there. This is Ty Morgan from InfinitePlanning.org, where I financially and emotionally support families that are not given options and help them to find a way to financial freedom. With Dr. Miller, we're here to help you find a way to beyond adversity to your life of peace, prosperity, and purpose on the Beyond Adversity Podcast. Welcome to the Beyond Adversity Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, the show dedicated to helping you crush adversity and succeed in life. Brad believes you deserve a life that is fulfilling and impactful. And this show is designed to help you navigate beyond adversity and achieve your life of peace, prosperity, and purpose. Now, here's Dr. Brad. Hello, good people. Welcome to Beyond Adversity with Dr. Brad Miller. What a pleasure and a privilege it is to have you to join me today as we continue to help you to navigate adverse life conditions and to emerge to your life of peace, prosperity, and a purpose. You can always go over to our website, drbradmiller.com, and find over 180 episodes of this podcast, which is devoted to helping you to overcome adversity in your life. And we listen to great experts and people who can speak it to your life and help be helpful to you. We also have a free gift for you there, and we invite you, if you like what you hear, to please share it with others. One of the key things that many, many, many people deal with is poor health, including such things as, as diabetes, as obesity, as issues with addiction. Here's my question today, friends. How are all those things related to how you feel? And how is this adversity of your physical health impacting your relationships, your viability, everything in your life? And how can we treat it? How can we do something about it? Our guest today on episode number 184 is Dr. Gupreet Prada from the Prada Institute. And he is an expert in this, this juxtaposition of addiction and obesity and diabetes having to do with people to have optimal health. And we're going to talk today about how he has been helpful to people, for people who've, who are obesely, uh, who are morbidly obese, to lose significant amounts of weight, to help other folks reverse their diabetes, to help chronic pain to be treated, and to come to an optimal situation of their health. And we're going to talk about the emotional stories that people have had, because we like to talk about people feel, and we're talking about even people who have been evangelistic in their own terms about 
the hopeful processes that Dr. Prada institutes. But we're also going to talk, we're going to learn something today. We're going to learn about the connection between addiction and algorithms and habits and how that's all part of how corporate entities in the food industry and pharmaceuticals have kind of conspired in a way to help people keep people fat and sick and how that is part of their process. And Dr. Prada unpacks that. He discusses solutions for a future, including how to uh, prevent and treat and to deal with all these situations and that lead us to physical, emotional, financial ruin if we don't let it to, if we don't do something about it. We're going to have an inspiring and powerful conversation today about your health and how you can visualize a sustainable future for yourself and how you impact others. One of the greatest adversities we face is our physical health. And we're going to deal with that here today on episode 184. When we come back on the other side of the interview, which I hope that you will, we're going to talk specifically about what you can do about it. Our guest today on the Beyond Adversity podcast, Dr. Gupreet Prada from the Dr. Prada Institute. Let's get into that conversation right now. We welcome to our Beyond Adversity audience today, we welcome Dr. Gurpreet Pada. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for hosting me. Well, it is is indeed a privilege uh, to have you with us here on Beyond Adversity. And we'd love to hear a little bit about the background of our guest. And you shared with me a bit of your background. It's a fascinating background because when we talk about, we're going to talk about health matters, of course, but everything's interrelated to our own experience. Tell us a little bit about your experience. You came up, grew up, and then eventually uh, led you towards the field of medicine. Yeah. So I grew up in India. I moved to the United States when I was about nine years old. And when we moved to the U.S., I grew up in the urban downtown St. Louis area, which we commonly and affectionately called the ghetto. I grew up in India in the state of Punjab and went through a lot of time periods where there was a lot of uncertainty in our future because Pakistan and India were fighting and their main zone of fighting was the fields in, that were in, in my backyard uh, in India. So we, I grew up in an area that was very tumultuous. And we had relocated to the U.S. because my father and mother both worked for the U.S. government. My father was a physicist. My mother was a, a statistician, a, a mathematician. And so we relocated to the U.S. eventually. And so that's how I got here. And I always had a sense because I'm Sikh I, I and most of India is Hindu and Pakistan was Muslim. And I got to the U.S. and I was the only kid that wasn't black in my school and there were no white kids. And so I always had an opportunity to look at the situation as an outsider and examine and study it. And I spent a lot of time because I was very inward. I was very introspective. I had a lot of time to to look at my environment in all situations that I was in to study it and to get a better understanding. So that's, that's essentially, that was my formative period. At the same time, I had come from an area that was extremely socialist or near communist in India, and you couldn't get food. You didn't have food security unless you had a voucher. And so I grew up under a semi-communist regime. India was at that point attempting to become more communist. 
Uh, in fact, my first books that I read were in Russian at the Chandigarh embassy for the Chandigarh Russian embassy. Wow. Coming to the US, you guys had everything. And so I was fascinated by the capitalism of the United States. And, and so that allowed me to, to experience firsthand what it was to have an open market system. And I loved science. And so I was able to excel in that and ended up in medical school eventually. What an incredible story. And you really, I'm sure even as a, as a boy of nine or 10 years old, had to have incredible culture shock going from a place of war and devastation. And you saw your share of death, even as a youngster and lack to coming to a place with relative abundance and also all the other opportunities that came before you. And uh, yet you've seen how the world of abundance has its problems as well, haven't you? And that's, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of the things that we have going on in our world right now, and especially from your perspective as a doctor who specializes in health and fitness and mental health and things like addiction. You have a real emphasis on addiction. In fact, one of your websites is addictionology.center. And so tell us, I'm just kind of interested, doctor, because sometimes we glide over things. We hear the word addiction used a lot. But what is addiction? How do you define it? How do we recognize it? So addiction in its classic sense is a desire for the human being to use a substance for a purpose in which it was not intended. So for example, let's say that I break my leg and somebody prescribes me a pain medicine for my broken leg. Well, that's appropriate use of that medication. Let's say that that injury has healed, but I like the feeling that that pain medication gives me. And now I start to use the pain medication because I get a feeling that's different. Well, now I'm inappropriately using the medication and that would be technically the term addiction because now I've used the medication in which, in which it was not intended and it's affecting my life. So certainly it's the use of a medication. But addiction is more than that. And I, I, think, I think that we need to have a different circumspect. So my area of medical specialty initially was surgery, then was anesthesia, then was interventional pain. And that's what I've spent the last 25 years on is dealing with interventional pain. But in order to get a better grasp of interventional pain, I realized that a lot of my patients were morbidly obese. They were pre-diabetic or diabetic. And then I realized a chunk of them had some addiction issues as well. So I ended up having to uncover what area, especially I'm truly in. And what I ended up doing was looking at it and discovering that what I was dealing with as a conglomeration was metabolic inflammation. And so my areas of focus are interventional pain, addiction, and obesity slash diabetes type 2. So, and that combined is called metabolic inflammation. So that's, that's kind of what I do. Now, yeah. addiction, and I, I'm very particular because I, I don't know if you recall the, the Korean War, the Vietnam conflicts, the Korean conflicts. We had a lot of GIs that were over there. And... About 50% of them were experimenting with opium. They were experimenting with poppy. And a good chunk of them were believedly addicted. And half of them were using a medication in a way that it was not intended. So technically, the term is they were addicted. 
And one of our biggest fears was that when we repatriated the soldiers back to the United States, they were going to come back and we were going to have these zombies walking on the streets doing heroin. But that's not what happened. What happened was that when we repatriated the soldiers and they came back into the United States, only three or 4% of them used drugs when they were back in the U.S. where 50% of them were using it there. So maybe that definition of addiction, of using a medication for a purpose that's not intended, maybe a little, may, needs a little bit more granularity. And so it was the paradigm that they were in that created their desire to get out of their heads. And if you go back to mammalian studies, you look at elephants. So just elephants. to hit a pause just for a second. So you're saying that for, for instance, Vietnam, Korea, it was their environment. It was the context. It, it was, was the, the, context the It was the mental uh, state that they, they, you know, the actual external mental or the, the external state, which impacted their mentality, which all had a significant influence on their choices to use uh, opiates of some sort. Yeah. So then we're going to transfer this uh, that context, that state to when they came back to, to the States now. So go on and finish your thought there. I just want to kind of understand, yeah. get a head around it about we're talking about state here. aren't we? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's their, it's their paradigm. It's their physicality. And so there were another set of studies done, and this was done on a rat model study. They took rats and they threw them into a glass case and they gave them on one side, essentially morphine water. And on the other side, they gave them water. And they looked at the rats and the rats kept going back to the morphine water and kept drinking it till they overdosed. And many of them died and they lost all interest in everything else but the morphine water. They wouldn't take food. They wanted to get high and drink the morphine water. And that was the original concept. You expose an animal to a drug, it will take the drug and get high and die. And, and that's how we came up with the original concept of addiction. They redid that study, though, and recently. And they put the rats in a cage and they gave them the opportunity for morphine water or regular water. But at the same time, they put other rats in there with them and they put them in a maze and they let them play with other rats and have sex with other rats and play and be intellectually curious. And none of those rats took the morphine water, even though it was available to them. And so what that tells you is that it's the boredom and it's the fear and it's the despondency and loss of hope that creates the addiction, not the simple presence of the drug. I also sounds so, like perhaps the lack of options or the perceived lack of options could have been there as well. Yeah. And so in my urban core practice, when I'm driving down Union in North St. Louis, you'll see young African-American kids who have no future, who have no hope, dealing dope on the street and doing dope. Because they got nobody else and no place to go because they don't perceive a future. They're despondent and they have a tremendous loneliness. They're isolated socially, even though they might be next to the next dope, dope dealer. They're internally lonely. And so my treatment algorithm for addiction goes beyond the concept of break the addiction with chemistry. Mine goes to, look, we need to embrace these people and we need to give them hope. And we need to give them a future and we need to integrate them into society in a way that they feel that there's a compelling reason why they should reintegrate. Once you do that, a lot of these aberrant behaviors go away. And yes, there are about 4% of the people that are addicted. 
maybe 2%, but it's not 50%. It, it, you know, it, it's a much lower amount. And it's really the context of the patient in that environment. And the environment so, is a big chunk of it. Yeah. So you're describing a paradigm, Capreet, which integrates societal norms with mental health issues, with emotional relationships that are positive and uplifting, a sense of hope, which could be described in some uh, spiritual terms as well, in such a way in order to break their addiction, as opposed to only kind of a uh, hard break of the chemical lock on the on the body. How does this compare to basically orthodox approaches to treating to treating addiction? Does this go against the grain with that, or is this kind of an alignment with the orthodox thinking? So the orthodox treatment of addiction, there's two there's two 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 different ways that people go. One of the techniques is more of a alcoholics anonymous and narcotics anonymous concept, which mm-hmm. is have a lot of social support have it very regimented and become addicted to the group. So you, you change your addiction from the substance to the group and then work your way out of that addiction of the group. That's one way to do it. The other way is the medicalized way, which a lot of my physician colleagues do, which is I'm going to do harm reduction. I'm going to give you a different drug that occupy receptor in your brain that gives you a similar dopamine release. So you get a satiety of sensation. You get, you get a, you get a, a feeling that will not kill you. And all I've done is switched your addiction from a one drug to another drug. And maybe I can wean you off of a drug that's less deadly over time, but both of them ignore the fact that the patient has to go back home. And as soon as the patient is alone, they're right back where they started. That's why the recidivism rates are so high. And they fundamentally ignore some of the other issues because these patients don't come into you purely with this, with this, this, they, they come into you with severe other issues. And typically it's metabolic inflammation. It's the food that they've been eating. So if you look at their omega six to three fatty acid ratio, you'll find out that they're replete with vegetable oil and they don't have very much omega three. You'll find out that they have metabolic inflammation. Their HSCRPs are high. Their LDLPs are high and there's biomarkers that we can identify. And if you fix those biomarkers, you see a dramatic improvement. If you, mm-hmm. if you have high vegetable oil, you have poor cognition. You have poor ability to delay gratification. You have a much higher degree of ADD. We see this in little kids as they enter school. They start off, little ch- children, you know, babies are parasites. They suck all the nutrition from their mother in the womb. And yes. they're born with a decent amount of omega-3. And that's how they myelinate their brain. But by the time they're two to five years old, they've run out of the gas on that. And if you're eating basically processed food with vegetable oil, you end up with a severely neuro, severe neuroinflammation and you end up with a lot of ADD. Yeah. Um, and these well, kids we see this. end up with criminal issues. Yeah, we see this in the in the situation you've mentioned here. I happen to be a pastor of an urban church in the inner city of Indianapolis, and I see my share of issues and problems all the time: homelessness, people with 
obesity and all kinds of issues. And you see that as well. And of course, it's not just in the Ernie city, it's everywhere. But what you're talking about here is a really, I'm interested in what you've termed in some of your writing and some of your research, the collision of epidemics that are coming together. And we kind of see that manifested in the urban core sometimes, but it's really everywhere. So say a word about this collision and how this collision is so destructive to individuals' health and public health and therefore the greater good. Yeah. So we used to have a situation that we had malnutrition. The fundamental basis of SNAP benefits, supplemental nutrition uh, benefits, was because we had malnutrition. And we started giving out food stamps because we were transporting. We had an issue. We had a dust bowl in the United States in the Southwest. And we would transport highly processed food from the Northeast by train send it down to the Southwest of the United States because we were trying to keep the population alive. That was issue one. Issue two was that we had an issue where about a third of army recruits could not qualify to be in the armed forces because they were too thin and they had sarcopenic wasting. And so we had a national security, but then we've had a change. Now we have the malnutrition of excess. And now half of the U.S. Army recruits can't get into the U.S. Army because they're overweight. Mm -hmm. And the SNAP benefits that were intended to take us out of malnutrition and sarcopenic wasting and being too gaunt and thin have flipped because our commercial process is has a ton of calories in it, but is nutritionally deficient. So we, we've increased the caloric density. We've increased the vegetable oil because it's room temperature stable. But unfortunately, the side effect of that has been severe metabolic inflammation. So we have this these confluences of factors that end up causing epidemics. And the epidemics that I'm specifically talking about is obesity diabetes, addiction, pain. And I would tell you that part of the issue that we're dealing with, with the most recent viral issues with COVID and things of that nature, a lot of the patients that have had significant issues with that are diabetics, obese, and they have pre-existing metabolic inflammation. And so these are all collision factors that relate to the milieu of the the, yeah. the food environment that we're in. So the collision is not only in the, indivi- in the individual and their choices, but it's also on the culture and the neighborhoods, or the neighborhoods of availability of their nutritional product. The SNAP program hasn't really uh, worked as well or in the mindset that many would have tended to be. But also we have the uh, correlation with the, with the industrial food processing uh, world and all the economic interrelatedness and all this type of thing. You got governments involved and so on and, and world processing. So what do we, you know, it seems to me that there's got to be a multi-pronged approach to this. We're going to do something about it, Gurpreet. It's got to be an individual decisions. It might be a family decision, but it has to be kind of decisions on a uh, national, multinational level among the agricultural complex that we have, uh, food food processing complex. What do you think are some of the actions that, that can be taken? Let's talk with individuals or families. What are some actions that people can do to respond to this collision? If you have a collision, that means something bad's happened. What are you going to do then? So I think that we need to become more anti-fragile. I think that we need to look at our immediate environment and ask ourselves, what's going to happen when our food distribution systems collapse? What's going to happen when we can't go to the grocery store? and find the food that we normally find 
because it's sitting in shipping containers somewhere in Mexico and the borders are shut down. And so I, I think that the solutions for a lot of this stuff is to bring back local production of food. And I don't see why every household doesn't have its own garden or a few chickens. I don't see why we can't bring back local production. I recognize that that means that we're going to be eating seasonally and that we can't get avocados 365 days of the year from Mexico and that you know we may not be able to get peaches in, in February because peaches aren't available in February. And so I, I think that we need to go back to more of a seasonal eating concept. And I believe in my personal opinion that we need to have a more regional food production plant system so that we're not having to 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 essentially hyper eat hyper processed stored foods. So I think that's part of it. And so I've been working with local communities here in St. Louis, helping them develop local garden systems, helping mm-hmm. design and develop in the urban core systems that where if you aggregate blocks together in the center of the blocks, you put gardens and on the rims of the blocks, you put the housing. And so that you have shared common space in the centers. And that way, you know, the, the, there are opportunities that you can do urban zoning with agricultural zoning combined. And that's actually encouraged by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but nobody's really. But there are these urban agricultural zones that are available. And so I think that 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 would really be beneficial. Once we get closer to our food production, I think a lot of this stuff changes. Once kids know where eggs come from, once kids know how to grow food, once we no longer are dependent upon distribution systems for everything, I think it really improves. The- You're going to have also more of a, what they call it, regional farming. The distribution is more of a regional basis where you could have the expansion of, for instance, farmers markets and things like that. In my town of Indianapolis, we got a few around in the suburban areas and we've got one big one in the downtown area. But it seems like even that could be expanded. You could have a bigger operation of those things and to uh, source that. I know i we encountered a chef here locally not too long ago who caters some of the big hotels with the big events here, Indy 500, that type of thing. And they specialize in sourcing locally. And, and then they were then they were able to market it because you know, another piece of this is the whole marketing and that, you know, business side of it and that kind of thing, which would be, be the, the pushback. So let, yeah, tell me a little I'm bit always, more. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. I'm always amazed when I drive down the highway and I look at all the greenery and the mowed grass on the highway. And if that was India, that would all be farmland. I mean, you guys have so much green space and, you know, throw some goats out there. (laughs) I mean, you know, why spend all that diesel fuel and all the petroleum to cut down the grass when you could build, you know, places for birds to be and put some evergreen trees in? And, you know, why not put put in wildflowers so you can have bee populations? I mean, you've got tremendous amounts of highway wasted. And I just don't understand why we don't do that. I mean, it would improve the air quality. You would then stop cutting the grass because cutting grass uses petroleum. And if you want to reduce carbon emissions, that would be an amazing way to do it. And so, I mean, to me, those are the kind of things that they're they're self-evident. We have them. We have the capability to do it and we could put people to work. I mean, we could literally put people to work 
Well, you've integrated the you've integrated the whole ecological environmental issue, which is so important as well. I, I happen to have a son who's in a grad school for for architecture, but his specialty is sustainable, ecologically sensitive architecture. So this is the type of thing I think we're talking about here, where everything has to be integrated together. So tell yeah. us, I, I want to bring it down that we've talked about the macro for a minute. Let's talk about the micro for just a second. Let's just say, for instance, in the church that I serve, we have an after-school program where we have anywhere from a dozen to 25 or so after-school young people, almost entirely African-American, almost entirely from really tough home life. And many of them it's just noticeable, are dealing with obesity and with other health-related problems based on their family life. Let's just say one of the, and it's often grandmothers who are raising these uh, these children. Let's just say there's a grandma who really wants to do something about it. You know, you've mentioned about putting the garden out, that type of thing, but maybe they want to really uh, leverage up what they can do. And maybe there's other things that people can do, you know, in whatever environment they have. Is there a change of diet? You know, we hear a lot about keto. We hear about intermittent fasting, things like this, or other things that that grandma can do to help implement her grandkids or better grandkids? Yeah, I I love that question because this is what I deal with every day. This is my entire area of of effect. And so, and I, I deal with grandmas. They don't necessarily bring me their kids, but they're, they're doing it for their children and their children's children. Right. Um, right, And frequently we'll see two to three levels of, 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 aging in a particular a family unit. So yeah. we'll see great grandma, grandma, and, and, and mother and child in the same family unit. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. The way that we're teaching kids to eat is wrong. If we start off feeding the kids sugar first thing in the morning, they're going to be hungry all day. And breakfast is the best meal of the day for the cereal company. It's not the best <laughs> meal of the day. For the kid, if we think historically how we ate, nobody ate breakfast before 1940s. It was unusual to eat breakfast until General Mills started pushing that as a marketing slogan. Yes. So that's unique to marketing. That, that That's not a scientific basis. Human behavior is that overnight, we're supposed to be in a fasted state. And during that fasted state, we're depleting slowly the glycogen out of our liver. And the glycogen is being utilized as fuel. And then in the morning, we're supposed to get up and move around and do activity so that we can then generate some calories that we can eat later, perhaps for afternoon or dinner. But we don't, we never had refrigeration until recently. We didn't suddenly wake up in the morning and be able to go to the fridge and get some oatmeal that was cooked and ready to go. That's it. And so we're not letting our livers decompress from the glycogen. So one of my main things is I try to get my people to realize that time-restricted nutrition is from a behavioral standpoint and from a evolutionary standpoint, the right way to eat. So I have my patients eat from a eating window of about 11 a.m. to about 6 p.m. And what that does is it forces satiety. Because if you don't eat a bunch of food in the morning and you start eating at about 11 and you're done by 6 p.m. and you know that's your eating window and then you don't snack outside that window, it allows you adequate time, two thirds of the time to deplete the glycogen out of your liver, which then makes your liver less insulin resistant. And if you're less insulin resistant, your insulin levels go down. And most people don't realize this, but insulin is a hormone produced by the pancreas. Its main goal is to cause fat storage. It takes existing glucose in your bloodstream and forces it into your liver, stores as glycogen first, and then 
overflows to fat. And, you know, our issue is that we have about 500 grams of stored glycogen. And most people, because they forage all day long and they, they eat all the way till bed, and they first thing they get up and they eat first thing in the morning, their liver never, ever depletes in glycogen. Mm-hmm. They never go into mild ketosis. And mild ketosis is, is a normal state for human beings. And so, so what you're describing is, is the, and what you're describing is, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, basically the formula for the epidemic of type 2 diabetes. Is that yeah, what exactly. you described? I, you know? I can make anybody a type 2 diabetic in a matter of about a week and a half if I give You're them right. a bunch of soda a bunch of sugar. Like if I take a kid and give them six or seven sodas a day, which is a lot, of, and just keep them doing that for week on week, they'll become insulin resistant in about two weeks. And I can push them and eventually deplete them of the insulin production in their pancreas, and they'll be type two diabetic. And you can do that to anybody. It's a recipe to make diabetes. It's easy. Reversing it is the, is the challenge. And that's what we yeah. do. We, we spend a lot of time getting that reversed. Well, and let's let's talk about that for a second. Of course, the common approach, I'll just share with you, I'm a type 2 diabetic myself. Okay, I'll just share that with you. I got it basically under control about 12, 15 years ago when I lost about 100 pounds, but it's still a part of my life. Okay, still a part of my life. So what do you say about the approach that a lot of folks have and a lot of doctors have, of, you know, all kinds of of drugs and so on and so forth, insulin injections and so on like that. What part does that play? And as you, and then I want to hear more about your approach to, to this. Episode. So l- let me back up one step. And because I, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. We have two types of diabetes. We have type one diabetes in which we essentially do not produce insulin. And we have type two diabetes in which we produce too much insulin. Type 1 diabetes is typically seen in childhood, but it can be seen in adults too. Type 1 diabetes usually occurs and the patient is extremely thin when they're diagnosed. Why are they extremely thin? Because they don't have any insulin and insulin is a fat storage hormone. However, as soon as we start giving them insulin and we give them too much, they get overweight. So type one diabetics become overweight because we- I didn't know that part of things. I didn't. So people can go from being a type 1 to a type 2 diabetic? Nope. They're just overweight and type one. They're overweight type one. Okay. Yeah. And so what happens is they become overweight after we give them the insulin, but a type one diabetic is not. Which other has other health, you know, manifestations. Yeah. It has secondary side effects. So when you see a type one diabetic that's getting really overweight, that's because we're giving them too much insulin, which is causing them to have fat storage. And left to their own devices, type one diabetics that don't have any insulin become cachectic and they die of cachexia and diabetic ketoacidosis because mm-hmm. they can't hold, they don't can't store the fat they can't store the glycogen and they go into ketosis because they and their ketone levels are extremely high and, you know 5 6 7 8 9 10 and their pH is very low they're acidic and their mitochondria mm-hmm. shut down because they can't process anything that's a type 1 diabetic right. now there was a nobel prize awarded for the production of insulin. It was a Canadian that that came up with it. And the doctor that came up with it realized what a profound thing it was. And he got the Nobel Prize for it. And he said, you know what? This is such a profound thing. I'm going to give this insulin patent to these other companies. And these companies will forever provide insulin to diabetics for free. And the companies accepted this insulin patent. 
You know what they did? They turned around and said, yeah, yeah, we accept this insulin patent. Well, we're not going to produce that insulin. We're going to produce this little variation of insulin that we added a little zinc to. We added this to that. We're going to sell. But we don't make this cheap stuff over here that the patent was for. Which and is so why pharmaceutical companies are so enormous, right? Or what leads to one of the yeah. factors, right? Okay. So, you know, they, they ended up getting the free patent and then ter- switched around and sold the, di- the the insulin. So now let's talk about type 2 diabetics. All right. Type 2 diabetics are a different creature. Type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance. That's how it starts. And so what happens is, for whatever reason, there's a variety of reasons, your insulin receptor doesn't work right. It doesn't see the insulin. So the receptor is on one side. The insulin is being produced by the pancreas. It's being produced usually in response to the perception that the body is either getting sugar or that the body is going to get something that looks like sugar. And the pancreas produces the insulin and the insulin opens the receptor on the surface of the cell and allows the sugar to go into the cell. And at first it's stored as glycogen. And then if it's overflowed, it goes to fat. Okay. Okay. So that kind of makes sense, right? And what happens is eventually over time, that insulin receptor doesn't work right. And so the insulin receptor can't see the insulin, but the pancreas keeps piling on the insulin. The pancreas keeps piling on the insulin and the insulin level goes really, really, really high. And so a type two diabetic initially has too much insulin and the receptor doesn't work. A type one diabetic has no insulin and the receptor works really well. Okay. A type two diabetic has too much insulin, the receptor doesn't work, and then eventually the pancreas gives out and doesn't produce as much insulin. So a type two diabetic has a pancreas that becomes fatigued, the beta cell doesn't work for whatever reason, and I'll explain a couple of things about that. And so then the insulin is too high and the receptor doesn't work, and the patient just continues to get fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter, more and more insulin resistant, and they get fatter. I'm not talking about fat like because somebody's fat. I'm talking about a fatty liver. Yeah. I'm talking about fat. And so th- that's the I'm issue. That, that, so that's, that's the, the issue. Flaw. What are we going to do about it? So what are we going to do? There's a couple things. One is understanding that we need to make the receptor more sensitive. And so why is the receptor no longer sensitive? It might be part of it, part of the time, is that the surface of the hepatocyte, the surface of the cells aren't, fl- aren't mobile like they're supposed to. They're not moving. There's a lipid bilayer there and it's made of fat. And that lip- lipid bilayer, if it's fixed, filled with oxidized LDL and filled with oxidized fat and filled with omega-6, that lipid bilayer doesn't move. It becomes kind of frozen. It becomes static and it causes inflammatory change. And when it does that, the receptor doesn't, doesn't take up the, the insulin like it's supposed to. So it, 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 you, you end up with insulin resistance. Uh, and insulin resistance is really the receptor doesn't work and my insulin is too high. And so what we do is we try to restore the insulin sensitivity. And there's a whole host of methods that we do that. One of the methodologies is to use... Um, is to get their omega-6 to 3 fatty acid ratio back to normal. So this the is through medication or diet or both? or It's diet and medication okay. and very specific medication. It's not expensive. It's super cheap. It's called fish oil. <laughs> it, 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 it's really cheap. And some of the cheapest medications that we have for diabetes 
for example, Doctor, I'll show you something. I know we're on audio, but I'm going to show you a video. This is what I keep on my desk right here. It's little packets of fish oil. That's what I keep. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah. I personally recommend patients use krill oil, which is like fish oil, but has a terpene in it called asters, and okay. they buy it online. Uh, the correct dose for most people is about four grams a day, even though the bottle says one gram a day, the correct dose, unless you have a major cardiovascular problem or have a history of atrial fibrillation, the correct dose is about four grams a day. And certainly I'm not giving individuals health advice on this uh, podcast, sure, of course. But, Understood. but the, but that's, that's one of the recommendations that I make. Right. So we get you more insulin sensitive by changing the lipid bilayer and that's part of it. And then at the same time, as you start to lose the weight, we, we pull a few grams of fat out of your pancreas. And as soon as you remove a few grams of fat out of your pancreas, 50 grams, 80 grams, it's a small incremental amount. All of a sudden, the blood flow through the pancreas dramatically improves. And when it does that, your insulin production capacity goes right back up. And so you can so see you're that. On, you're heading on a pathway towards health at that point. Is that right? Yeah, you're back, then you're back on the correct pathway. We modify what you're eating. We do time-restricted nutrition and we get you to the, to the healthier fats that you're supposed to eat. And I'm always surprised at how quickly people reverse their diabetes. It happens literally in a matter of a few weeks, as long as they're producing some insulin. Now, if they're yeah. not producing any insulin and they have zero C-peptide, then it's a lot tougher and yeah. that's not going to reverse in the same way. Well, speaking of reversing and some good things are happening, really, I'd love to hear a story at this point, Gurpreet, about a person or a situation where they came through your teaching, your program and your treatment, and you did see some really, you know, really some heartwarming change that took place in their life. And they came from a bad place. We're all, we're all about overcoming adversity, but you've seen their health change, maybe everything, other path, parts of their life change as well. Tell us a testimonial story about somebody that you've encountered. Yeah. So we have literally thousands of those. If you go to my website, people do videos all the time. And we probably have 500 videos on my pain site, painmd.tv, www.painmd.tv. But let me, I'll bring it together for you because I think that there's more to the story. So, yes. you know, a lot of times people come in and they're 400 pounds, they're 350 pounds, and it takes about 17 interactions to get them from that massive weight to get them to understand what dietary interventions we're trying to get to because they're very resistant. They're being marketed to by television and they're mar being marketed to by our mainstream media and they're being marketed to by the drug companies and by the big agricultural companies to eat all the time and this pill or this injection will fix it. Yes. And the thing is, if you have a fat doctor, he's not going to tell you that you're fat. <laughs> he's going to look at you and wonder, are you fatter than me or are you skinnier than me? And if he's, if he's, fatter than you, he's never going to tell you that you're fat. And that, if you look that at your is, nutritionist- that's such, a, that's such an insight. It really isn't it, you know? Yeah. And if your nutritionist is overweight, they're not going to tell you what to do either because they don't know. They're sponsored yeah. by big agriculture. If you've ever been to a nutrition conference, it's sponsored by Nestle. It's sponsored by <laughs> big agricultural <laughs> food companies. Why am I not um, surprised? And wow. so their recommendation is 130 to 150 grams of carbohydrate per day for the diabetic patient, when in reality, glucose is not a 
nutritional element that we need in our diet. It's not, it is not an essential element. We have certain so amino acids. If I'm understanding you're saying they, they recommend 130 grams, you're saying basically almost zero or you don't very need little. Your body you can produce it. it and you're going to still get some anyway. And yeah. I don't care how good you are. You're still going to get about 20 grams a day in the best of situations in our society. Right. So you're going to get plenty and your body can make glucose through gluconeogenesis. So you don't need to go look for 150 grams. You're going to try to avoid that. And if you look, if you listen to your nutritionist, you're going to be eating snacks every two to three hours because they want you to eat six times a day. Right. And I only want you to eat twice a day because I want you to use satiety to keep your brain full, keep your stomach full. And I want you to have appropriate leptin levels. So, and and so correctly, you want that you want that to eat twice a day, but between that eleven and six window, right? Yeah, because okay. I want you to have leptin sensitivity. I want your brain to sense leptin, and so let's and we could really go down the rabbit hole. I could spend an hour or two just go to explaining to you how leptin works and and its sure. fact. But the, the issue is, I want to get you as full as I can, and I want to mm -hmm. keep you from being hungry. So. Patients come into me, they're massively overweight. It takes about 17 times for them to understand what we need to do because food is an addiction. The thing is, they add high fructose corn syrup to food. The normal amount of fructose in a high fructose corn syrup would be 55% fructose, 45% uh, 45 glucose. But if you look at the average soda in the United States, it's closer to 60%. They spend extra money to increase the fructose higher level than it should be. Why do you think they do that? Because fructose affects the dopamine receptor more than glucose does. And the higher the fructose, the more addictive that substance potentially can be. So their scientists so, have done their research and they know what they're doing is what you're saying. Yeah, right? a lot of the scientists went from the cigarette industry to the food industry when cigarettes became taboo. Now, unfortunately, they're moving from the food industry to the marijuana industry. So we're going to see some very interesting things as in terms of patients' yeah. desire and need for using marijuana because a lot of the technology is moving That's, over to the marijuana yeah, industry. Available and legalized now. But again, I'd really yeah. like to hear at least one story yeah. to repeat about so, it. So that's what I'm getting to. So you, you get these patients, it takes them a while, and it's you got to break that addiction and addiction concept. So I get these patients in, they weigh a ton. And it takes a little bit to get through the process. What I found out one day was I showed up at my clinic. It was early in the morning and I, I got there early. You know, I, I usually get there at like 530 or six, but I was running a little bit late, but my clinic doesn't open until eight. And I opened the back door and there's already people there and there's a revival going on in my lobby. It's my patients. They had collected together as a group. And they had been going to church together. They'd been losing weight together because of our protocols. And they had been sharing this and they had decided to create an ad hoc group. And they were sharing <laughs> their stories in our front lobby and they had brought their kids. And so that was what, that was the critical moment when I realized it, I had to go through the African-American churches because that's how I was going to be able oh, to connect. Man in a more significant way. That is and so awesome to hear. That's what it was. It was, a, it was a massive trigger for me that I was like, hold on. I've been approaching this in the wrong way. I'm approaching this from one-on-one. -on -one, and what I need is I need evangelists. And so I need to <laughs> That's have awesome. people evangelize for me, give them the protocols, give them the credit, give them all the tools, and then stand back 
and let them ask questions of me to assist, but let them evangelize because I don't charge for that protocol anyway. I'm not going to charge for it. I want to help society. Sure. And this, that evangelism, that was Sorry, the, the approach of, of yeah. getting people to absorb this, recognizing that it fixed the paradigm, it p- fixed the social isolation, it fixed the food, and it gave people a mission and purpose. I have a woman that is now, you know, she w- weighed 450 pounds. She's down to 155, 160, and she was embarrassed to go out. And now she's a spoken word poet. She's wow. a spoken, she, she does poetry. She's put herself out and she's there. One, she's put herself out there. And now she realized how abusive a relationship she was in. And now she's empowering other women to get out of these abusive relationships. See, in the African-American community, people sometimes hide behind their weight because they're in abusive relationships and they're less likely to be abused if they're more overweight. Sure. And that's something that there's so there's much another so discovery much. along yeah. the way. I love um, what you're saying here because it's just so interconnected and interrelated. Because we talked about, you know, some of the collision of all these bad factors, but the the response to it, what you hear me, uh, what I'm hearing you say here, Gupreet, is the response to it is the evangelistic thing, which is the coming together of the mental health, the emotional, the spiritual, the uh, the collective, the community. And that's part of what I teach is how these are all integrated together to help us get through adverse life events. And that's awesome. I, I am so, you know, I, I'm a bit of a, a, a student of this, having been a diabetic myself for a number of years and dealing with uh, this as well. But I'm so glad to hear this uh, last part of our conversation about the evangelistic sensitivity and how basically people were kind of having church <laughs> based on what happened there because they saw results. They saw a life change happen. And that's awesome. So Gurpreet, if people want to understand more about you and what you offer, how can they be in contact with you through your websites or any other ways and learn about, about the services that you offer or learn more about what you are about? Yeah. So we don't charge for any of our protocols. So <laughs> there's nothing you're ever going to pay me. We make it freely available. And if somebody has a question, they can always reach out to me by email. I, I love interacting and helping people. It's our addiction site is addictionology.center. Our diabetes site is reversediabetes.md. And my pain site is painmd.tv. And each one of them has their own little niche. Certainly, if we have to do procedures or something like that, we charge for the procedures. But as in terms of the protocols and the bio, the neurobehavioral stuff, that's freely available. And we have, we have video, we've got audio, we've got protocols. And if somebody has a particular question, you know, I, I happily hop, hop on a call and have a conversation. I also work with a whole host of nonprofits. I work with people that have been imprisoned improperly for that for crimes they didn't commit. It's called Exoneration Nation. They're out of California. And, you know, they have their own issues. I also deal with helping the urban American community and the rural uh, uh, rural community that has a very similar problem yeah. of a we disconnect can... in, in dietary intake. But well, but it's interrelated also to, it's to, all to bring it's all societies up. Yeah. And pulling... Marvelous service here to our audience here on Beyond Adversity. We'll put connections to all of your websites on our website, drbradmiller.com. And I just want to say on behalf of, of a lot of folks, thank you for what you're doing to looking at things differently with a little different paradigm, this inner, inner uh, 
integrated uh, paradigm here and to help people to deal with this because it is an epidemic. I've seen it myself. It's in my own family. I see it all the time in my church setting and the other groups I work with. And uh, you're doing something good for the greater good. And I appreciate you. So Absolutely. thank you for being thank with you. Thank you for being with us today. Our guest today on Beyond Adversity has been Dr. Gurpreet Hada. That was an awesome conversation we had here today on Beyond Adversity with Dr. Gurpreet Prada from the Prada Institute. We'll put connections to several of his websites on our website, drbradmiller.com. And I hope you got a clue here, a feeling, but the passion that he brings to this issue of your health. He's seen it. He's done it. He is involved with the area of helping people to reverse diabetes, manage pain, gain optimal health. And he's talking about it from the processes of leveraging uh, addiction theory, addiction processes, breaking addiction, habits, algorithms, other things like this, and about he talks about treating people at the intersection of what is an epidemic of the opioids and of diabetes and all these pathologies and how it's all about inflammation and all things of this nature, but what we can do about it and the process that you can apply. It's about applying new thinking, new philosophies, new approaches regarding addictions and algorithms and habits and using some of the things that are used against us to make us fat and sick and to make us instead to be to break the grip of corporate entities and take charge of your own health. Among the places you can find him is a reverse is at reversediabetes.md. As I said, we'll put connections to what he's all about at drbradmiller.com. Here on the Beyond Adversity Podcast, we're all about helpful being helpful to you. We focus on things that are what we call the five D's of adversity. Depression, divorce, disease, we hit on the day, debt and death. And then what you can do about it to emerge out of these adverse life conditions to come to a place of peace and prosperity and purpose. That's my mission in life. That's what I want to do to be helpful to you. And we have over 180 episodes at drbradmiller.com to do just that and a free gift for you there to help you lead a life of peace and prosperity and purpose uh, for yourself. If we can be helpful to you, that's what we are here to do. If you like what you hear, please share the good news with other folks. And until next time, next week, folks, God bless. And remember to you can always grow through what you go through and remember to always Do all the good that you can. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. You can find a complete archive of all episodes at drbradmiller.com. That's drbradmiller.com. Or subscribe for free through Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode. Each week, we bring you a message to crush adversity and live your life of peace, prosperity, and purpose.